You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Good morning. Would you please pray with me? Lord God, as we follow along with Jesus this morning, we are amazed. Open our ears more than his hometown opened their hearts to him. Open our ears, Lord, so that we hear what you have to say to us today. Speak into us, Lord, and then speak through us the rest of this week. We pray, Lord, that you'd be with all the churches in our area today that are confessing your gospel and proclaiming your truth and your love and your mercy and grace in line with the genius of Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring about a movement in Southwest Florida that would change many lives that would transform us from the inside out, that would bring about your tangible kingdom, Lord, in this world that will also stretch into eternity. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. We are in the third week of the Genius of Jesus series, and we're going to be um, starting with the Bible verse that we're looking at, Jesus' first sermon. It's Luke chapter 4. So you can follow along either in the U version with, um, with our different notes or in um, the screen right now, on the screen or in your, whatever you got. We're going to read Luke 4, verse 16 to 30. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum... Do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Wow, even after 
30 years of preaching and teaching on Jesus, I am still amazed time and again as I read different scriptures and I study them during the week. And this is, this is the first time I've ever preached on Luke for his first sermon and uh, his first time. And yet I was just amazed and shocked and thrilled and challenged at the same time. And I hope you will be too with me. So the first week... Uh, In this series, we studied the genius of Jesus' temptation, the fact that he was tempted just like we are yet without sin and that he provides a way for us through temptation. The second week, uh, last week, we spoke about the born-again identity, the fact that in Christ, we are born again into a living hope, And in Christ and through his birth, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, to buy us out from being under the law, we have an inheritance, a new identity. We are children of God. We are gifted. We are given a great future. I mean, you just, it's amazing what we have. And by the way, um, last week I talked about affirmations that I had um, written years ago, Christian affirmations from different Bible passages, and I guess they were all taken last week. There are another um, dozen or so copies, I think, out in the lobby if you're looking for those, 30 different affirmations based on each scripture, and therefore, and if, if they run out again, we can print some more, okay? But just to let you know, they're in the lobby, okay? Today, we're focusing on the genius of Jesus, challenge accepted. And he shows from his first message that he accepted the challenge of being the unexpected Messiah. Now, um, this might be the shortest sermon in all of the Bible, by the way. Much shorter than mine. That's not saying much, though, right? But this sermon is only eight words long. Eight words. It's all he, he, he got up, just like they do in the synagogue at the time of Jesus. He got up, he unrolled the scroll that was handed to him, the scroll of Isaiah. He went through it, found the passage, which we know as Isaiah 61. They didn't have chapters and verses in those days quite like us. He found it. He read a very short section of it, which is amazing. And he also tended to edit it and add in a little of Isaiah 58 and and cut short what usually would be a long reading. And then he came back and he sat down. And in those days when you preached, you sat down. Okay? So we know it was a sermon. And his sermon is eight words long. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's it. Now, I guess I could stop there. And some of you go, yes. But would you get it? Would you understand what was going on? And I'll tell you this. I believe those in Nazareth got it. They got it, and they didn't like it. Okay? Now, I know at the beginning it says in our English translations, which are sometimes an interpretation of the words, it says that everyone was speaking well of him, but the actual Greek text doesn't say speaking well of. It uses the word emarturon, which just means where we get the word martyr from. They witnessed, whether it was for or against, and I have a feeling it actually was, even though they said he had gracious words because all he said was really nice, they weren't that happy with it. And their first reaction, as you see, is, is this not Joseph's son, that carpenter? And in other words, they're saying, who does he think he is? 
Yeah, he went to his hometown. These were the people he grew up with, okay? Now, that's what we, we know, eight simple words. And yet, behind those eight words, behind these words of Isaiah is so much that they would have known and they would have understood, and we kind of probably don't know, okay? So I'm going to share with you just a little of that so you kind of get a feel for what was going on in that synagogue in Nazareth, that small town where Jesus grew up. First of all, when those words were written by Isaiah, they were written to a people who were captives. They had been taken in 586 B.C. to Babylon, okay? They had lost it all. They were no, the temple was destroyed, no more kings. They were off in Babylon, and they had been stripped of their wealth, stripped of their dignity, had lost everything, and Isaiah was proclaiming to them, there will be a favorable year of the Lord. You will return. And 70 years later, they did. But even when they did return, even when the captives were freed, even when they came back and the good news was preached to them because they were poor and they had nothing, they got back to the land, but they were still not in charge of their own one piece of property. It was still run by others. First the Persians, then the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. Yeah. Ptolemies and Seleucids. You probably never heard of those, right? Well, yeah, um, Cleopatra, she was a Ptolemy, okay? So now you know. You didn't want to. It might be in trivia, right? Okay. Anyway, so then, um, and then after that, the Greeks, Alexander, or I guess the Ptolemies and Seleucids were part of the Greeks, and then after that came the Romans, and they were still not in charge of their land. They were still feeling held captive, and Jesus is saying, now is a time of freedom. Now you have to go even farther back into their history, and boy, they know their history. We don't really know our history well, but they know their history. 1,400 years before when Moses was on the scene in Leviticus chapter 25, a book I'm sure you read all the time. But in Leviticus 25, it talks about this year of Jubilee, the favored year of the Lord. Have you ever heard of the year of Jubilee? You might have, but it's never been practiced, by the way. It was that every 50 years, God had set up the seven of sevens. The 50th year would be the year when all debts were canceled. Woohoo! And all slaves were released. Woohoo! For those who didn't have anything owed to them and those who didn't own slaves, that sounded great. Right? And Isaiah is saying there's going to be a favorable year of the Lord. You come back to the land and you should celebrate Jubilee. And like I said, it was never. 1,400 years. 1,400 years. Not once was it ever practiced in Israel. And Jesus says now is the favorable year of the Lord. And then thirdly, and this one we might know already, notice at the beginning of the text it says that the Lord has, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me. You know that word for anointed in Hebrew is Mashiach. He has Messiahed me. And so Jesus is saying to his hometown, can you believe it? Who does he think he is? I am the Messiah. Pretty important stuff. Now, the problem is, though, what he did say and what he didn't say in the prophecy of Isaiah. Because he kept it short. 
He kept it really short. And he didn't read a few verses later where Isaiah says this in Isaiah 61, 5 to 6. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the minister of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Do you get what's going on there? Isaiah is saying, you are going to be in charge of everybody else, and everybody else is going to give you their wealth, and they're going to be your slaves and servants. Jesus didn't share that. I don't think Nazareth was real happy. He didn't. Not only that, he even cuts the verse short. He even cuts it right halfway through the verse when he says the favorable, to proclaim the favor of the Lord or the year of the Lord's favor, he stops and he doesn't add the second half of the verse that says, and the day of vengeance of our God. What? Now, everyone in Nazareth in that synagogue knew this passage well. And when they heard he didn't do this, he didn't say those things, They weren't real happy. They weren't happy. Now, here's a little background on Nazareth. I learned this um, from Kenneth Bailey. He he recently passed away, but he had lived for 40 years of his life among the Palestinians and the Lebanese and the Middle Easterners in different ways and studied peasant culture, and then he read all the Syriac versions of the Bible and all these early church fathers that we don't usually read because I'm kind of Western. And so he read all of these others to find out what's going on. And this is what he discovered about this little town of Nazareth. It was a settlement in the midst of Galilee of the Gentiles. Did you know that? It was called Galilee of the Gentiles, that that whole area was a mixed group of people. But Nazareth, up till the fourth century AD, Nazareth remained an all-Jewish town. They can find this from archaeology. And so, imagine today, it would be very similar to an all-Jewish enclave in the West Bank, in the midst of all sorts of people who don't like you being there. Or it'd be like a, maybe a Ukrainian settlement in Russia, behind enemy lines. Do you understand? And so, when Jesus doesn't share anything about vengeance on the enemies, anything about the Gentiles being subservient to them, of course it's great to have the Messiah bless. Of course it's great there's going to be prosperity and freedom, but what about them? And they were ticked. And then to add insult to injury, to make sure he clarifies even more, he says, of course, you're going to tell me to do what I did elsewhere, but I'm going to tell you I can't here because you guys don't believe. In fact, a prophet in his hometown is not welcome. Guess what? In the day of Elijah and Elisha, let me tell you a couple stories about what was going on then. In in Elijah's day, there was a famine for three and a half years, and Elijah went outside of Israel. Even though there were a lot of widows in Israel, he went outside of Israel, and it was a widow from Sidon, a Gentile, who was blessed by God with his presence. And then he says, hey, in the days of Elisha, there are a lot of people with leprosy, but it was Naaman, who's a Syrian general, a Gentile, who was healed. 
If you want to enter the kingdom of God as the way God is establishing it, guess who your role models are? A Gentile woman and a Gentile man. And they were, as the text says, filled with wrath. And they take him outside of town, and they're ready to throw him off the cliff. That's how you stone people, by the way, in his day and age. You throw them down off into the boulders, and if the boulders don't kill them, then you start throwing stones on top to do a little more. So they were ready to kill him, and they said he was blaspheming God. This is not the God we worship. This is not the God we serve. Wow. The genius of Jesus. Rather amazing, isn't it? The gutsiness of Jesus. Jesus does not bend to populism or nationalism. He will not. He's basically saying, I am the Messiah, but I am not anointed to pit one group against another. I am not here just for one people group, just for those who think they are favored. I am here for everyone, and I am here to bring them all together. He was not here to whip up sentiments to try to gain popularity, to try to, you know, whip up the vote or get a band together to go against. He said, this is who I am and this is what I'm about, regardless of background or nationality or even gender. My messiahship is for everyone. Wow. This is how um, Michael Spencer says it, and I think it's really profound. When you read the Gospels, Jesus is including the excluded, healing the hopeless, remaking Israel, reaching out to the pagan, overturning the religious professionals, redefining all the predictable terms, shocking those who know all the answers, and in general, making it unmistakably clear that the kingdom isn't just about forgiveness and heaven, but about the life we are living and will live both in the kingdom here and now, as well as in the future. As Jesus walked through the world, the kingdom of God was like a big ship cutting through the waves. Every place he goes, the work of the, and fruit of the kingdom flowed out of him. Blind people see, hungry people are fed, deaf people hear, those with leprosy are cured, outcasts are included, people who are left out are brought in and beloved, the guilty are forgiven, the dead are raised. If you don't know who Jesus is, you miss it. Now that sounds all fine and good. And in our day and age, it might make sense. And we'd love that to happen in some ways in the theoretical. But boy, does it cut close to home. Because you see, to those who really kind of like it the way it is, who are kind of full of themselves and satisfied, those who believe they're moral enough or good enough or are on the right side of things, Jesus is a nuisance. Or he's unwanted an intrusion. He's simply offensive, and that's exactly what happens to his hometown. But to those who realize that they are captives, to those who realize their abject poverty, their own blindness, their moral bankruptcy, Jesus means freedom. He means liberation. He means salvation. 
So the genius of Jesus, he actually sees the things as they really are, not the ways we want to present ourselves. He sees through all of us and sees the poverty and the captivity. He sees all the issues that we struggle with. There are five different ways. We're going to go through them quickly. How Jesus cuts through the cutter of human culture and shows us what this all means. Number one, God's kingdom includes people from every different ethnic background. And he highlights here this widow and this general, both Gentiles. Do you remember he talks to a Samaritan woman at the well? Do you realize he talks with a Roman centurion? Do you realize he goes to a place called the Decapolis, the Ten Cities, which were a mixed bag group of people, and he feeds 4,000 people, and it's a Gentile-Jewish mixed crowd? Again and again, Jesus does the unexpected. No one sees things the way Jesus does. His day and age, no one was like this. And what it really means is he sees our divisions that have been based on race and culture, and he is bringing healing to them. That's the genius of Jesus. Number two, God's kingdom is one where it treats women and men as equal disciples. And this is pretty shocking. Again and again in the Gospel of Luke, he tells a story about a woman, this widow of Sidon, right? And a man, this general of Syria. He tells a woman who loses a coin, a man who loses a sheep. Again and again, you see, he does not just be satisfied with one example. He always gives two examples in the Gospel of Luke, and it's a man and a woman, and he treats them equally. He had women disciples, women who followed along and actually paid for his ministry at times. He does these things again and again. Jesus sees how we have used each other and the war between the sexes and how it has hurt so many people in this world, how people have been used and abused and victimized one way or the other and how we fight about it. And he is about bringing reconciliation and love and mercy so that we become servants of each other. That's the genius of Jesus. Number three, He not only includes people from different ethnic backgrounds, he doesn't even um, just deal with male and female issues, but he also brings in people with dark pasts and even current struggles. Think about Zacchaeus, a tax collector, the chief tax collector. Thinks about Matthew. Think about Peter himself, who in the midst of following Jesus, denies him three times and Jesus restores him completely. Think about the woman of ill repute, who comes into the house of a Pharisee and anoints Jesus' feet with oils and crying the whole way, and he forgives her, he loves her, he raises her up, and he castigates the Pharisee who has judgmental attitudes. Time and again, that's who's included. Jesus sees through our facades, like I said. He sees what we really have, our dark pasts and our current struggles, and he comes in and liberates, and frees, and forgives. That's the genius of Jesus. Number four, it's not going to be a political movement. Everybody wanted it to be that, and everybody thinks that's the answer, and politics, by the way, are not the answer. 
Maybe they can force, but coming up with this party wins, or that party wins, or this group wins, or that group wins, guess who? Then everybody loses in the end, and there is divisions, and there's all sorts of issues, and passing a law doesn't change people's hearts or transform lives, and Jesus says he sees the brutality and the inhumanity that's behind our politics and our military might. And he goes a different way of service and of love to transform people's lives. He transcends the politics of his day and every day. That's the genius of Jesus. Number five, he doesn't just try to transform people's exterior or behaviors but he's transforming hearts and dealing with motives. You see this all the way through the Sermon on the Mount when he says, hey, it's not just about murdering people on the outside. It's also the way that you treat people on the inside and you could still break this command. He looks at the Pharisees who had all the right outward appearances and were much more righteous than me. And he goes, your whitewashed tombs inside is filled with dead man's bones. What's going on inside is just as important. The genius of Jesus is he's not about simply changing external behavior, but transforming the internal motivation and heart so that we are new people. Isn't that amazing? You know what happened as a result of speaking this first sermon? Whew. He faces rejection. He faces the possibility of death. Uh, one of the books I read for my leadership uh, classes that I've taken in the past was Edwin Friedman's book um, called The Failure of Nerve, Leadership in the Age of the Quick Fix. And he says this about leadership, and I think it applies to the genius of Jesus. Leadership through self-differentiation is not easy. Learning techniques and imbibing data are far easier. Nor is striving or achieving success as a leader without pain. There is the pain of isolation, the pain of loneliness, the pain of personal attacks, the pain of losing friends. That's what leadership is all about. And Jesus accepts the challenge of leading a whole new movement, a whole new way, and accepts the pain of the isolation he faces throughout his life, the pain of loss of his own friends, even the closest friends he had, Peter, James, and John, who could not even sit up with him for an hour in his darkest need, and who all ran away from him or denied him or betrayed him in whatever form. He loses everyone and everything, and he knows that from the beginning. Just think of it. He comes to his hometown. These are the people he loves the most. He knows by name the kids he played with as he grew up and the families he ate with. And he is here to tell this is what the kingdom of God is about. This He is wanting to be filled with joy about the year of the Lord's favor. And he opens himself up and shares who he really is to them and they want to kill him. And yet he knows that's the challenge. He accepts it. He accepts it. And accepting our rejection, he brings us forgiveness and liberation and freedom. Okay. So, here's the reality. Are we there? Can we understand these five points and what that means for Thrive Community Church and our relationships and how we are as Christians following Jesus in the kingdom? So look around the room. There are people here 
who are about across cultural and ethnic lines, praise God, and the church should be about that. But it's much more than, hey, hi, how are you over there? Isn't that nice? And being friendly, it's actually making friends and realizing people who are strangers, and some of us are stranger than others, can be friends because of Jesus and his genius. It's about caring about people who have dark pasts and current struggles and walking them into this ministry and realizing that's we're all there in one form or another. It's not about being perfect. It's not about just an outward appearance. It's about changing the heart and being part of that transformation at first. That's the genius of Jesus that we want to display. This is how Paul said it. And he was... He had this huge transformation in his life. This is how Paul said it. He said, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Did you get it? Isn't that amazing? That's Galatians chapter 3, 28. So what we have going on here, what we want any church to be, what we believe the Christian church is, sociology can't explain. And economics cannot explain, and politics cannot explain, and psychology cannot explain, because there's a spiritual reality that God is doing something in us that defies all the cultural norms, all the things that would fit, and changes us once and for all. So those of you who feel captive today, those of you who feel bankrupt today, those of you who know you don't have it. Maybe you're in the same position as the widow in Sidon and the Syrian general, desperate. And then you're in the position to receive God's kingdom. You're in the position to be a part of God's kingdom. You're in a position to be integral to God's kingdom because that's who our Jesus is. And that's who we're going to be here, I think, at Thrive. Not perfect, not flashy, you know, not about image, but about substance. The genius of Jesus.